Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Pop Culture Quorum Deo. This is Jeff Wright. I am back with my regular co-host, the good Dr. Jared Moore. But we have a real treat this week. Dr. Ryan Putman is joining us for a review of Dark Skies, which is an odd choice, I'll admit. But there's a reason to the madness. And before we get jumped into that, uh, Jared, then Ryan, how are y'all doing today? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I've had a good day so far. Um, <laughs> you doing okay? So, listener, here's the thing. I just straight up butchered Ryan's name, and I'm going to edit that out so you'll never hear it. But that's why Jared's laughing at me. <laughs> that's fine, Jared. Get out of your system. We went through like a five-minute thing where you're trying to get it right. Well, that yeah, exactly, which is why I warned initially I'm an idiot, and sometimes you just can't counter-program that. Oh, I love you, man. Listen, I'm used to it. My name is weird. I admit it. I have a weird first name and a weird last name. If you look my my first name up in a in a Welsh dictionary, it means drainage ditch. <laughs> and, uh, Putman means worker of the pits. So drainage ditch, worker of the pits. I'm hoping it's not like one of those Old Testament names where you know it foreshadows all of your life events. So, hey Ryan, you pass it on to any of your kids. You name it Ryan Junior. No, no, I'm not going to do anything like that to my children. I love them too much for that. <laughs> I love your name, man. It's cool. Right now, so. Well, that's very gracious of you, but the problem is, yeah, again, you're dealing with an idiot, and I live, and well, I live, I minister in Putnam County, and my brain just can't handle multiple variations of that word. You just said it correctly there, so you're good. Yeah. uh, uh, Struggle bus. But, gentlemen, um, before we get started, I think we ought to do our listeners the service of making sure they, they know Ryan and his work. So, Ryan, you're currently at Williams Baptist University, and you're working as Associate Vice President of Academic Affairs. Is that correct? That is correct. This is your alma mater? This is my alma mater. I'm back in Northeast Arkansas. So how did they how did they call you back home, brother? Uh, well, it was an exciting opportunity to kind of reinvent the curriculum from top to bottom around a Christian worldview and um, to make it something that, it, that really hadn't really truly been, and that's distinctively Christian through and through in every degree program. And uh, and so I was excited about the opportunity to kind of come and be a theological facilitator for a faculty. And uh, so that's that's the thing I'm really enjoying about what I'm doing. World that sounds awesome. So we're beginning uh, next year requiring every student to go through kind of a worldview uh, curriculum. And um, this is going to be the first exposure that a lot of these students have to the gospel and uh, first exposure many of them have to to arguments for the defense of Christianity and Christian ethics, that sort of thing, basic Christian beliefs. So it's a, it's a pretty cool opportunity. I'm, I'm excited about that part. Is that going to be a distinct degree program, or are you kind of filtering this into all the, the existing degree programs? Every degree program will have worldview requirements, and, uh, and then our, uh, our, our, our Christian ministries degree is going to take a little bit different shape over time, but... Uh, but but we're just excited to be able to integrate it at every level and every degree. Well, that does sound exciting, and I, I appreciate the good work you're doing there. Um, I, I was looking at your listing on the uh, New Orleans Seminary uh, page, and it had you listed as Associate Professor of Theology and Culture. What did that entail when you were in New Orleans? Uh, primarily, it was theology and apologetics. Okay. And, uh, and so, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still maintaining that role. Obviously, from a distance, I'm still teaching my Ph.D. faculty in New Orleans, but uh, in some occasional master's classes there. But, uh, yeah, so I, I taught there for, I guess, 10 years. 
yeah. came on as came on as a doctoral student, and uh, and and then they just were desperate, and they kept me around, and so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking. You're from Memphis, Tennessee, right? Uh, the Memphis area, I'm North Mississippi, and then I then I grew up in in Memphis mainly. My pastor's kid. I've lived a couple. Of, I I just tell people I've lived across the Southeast Conference. <laughs> Well, then that that's the test of orthodoxy that comes up. Are you a, are you a Tigers fan? I am absolutely not a Tigers fan. I am a diehard Mississippi State fan. So, okay. uh, which is a sad, lonely, miserable existence. So. <laughs> well, as a Tennessee Vols fan, <laughs> let me just tell you, it's not maybe as lonely as you think. I uh, I, I understand what you're talking about. I think, but. You have, you know, so Memphis, New Orleans, you've lived in some great places to eat, brother. Uh, I hope you've had full advantage of that. Well, gentlemen, if you're okay with it, we'll jump into our first section called What You Watching? We're just going to review the things that have been catching our attention. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Ron, anything you've, I know you've, you're a busy man, anything you've had time to take some entertainment from? Uh, the the most interesting thing that I've been watching lately uh, is the Netflix documentary um, High Score of the history of the video game industry. I've I've just really been on a on a. Of course, I've been also watching uh, episodes of, uh, of of the new Unsolved Mysteries because I, I just like uh, true crime kind of stuff. And you know, there there is some of that paranormal paranormal UFO and and and. And the supernatural stuff, but I'm really more interested in the unsolved murders aspect things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I really like. I'm kind of on a documentary kick, I guess. When I have free time to watch something, that's usually what I'm doing. Yeah, so you know, all cards on the table. I will eventually be back, but I did in a huff kind of cancel my Netflix uh, subscription over that Cuties controversy. And man, I miss the uh, I miss the documentaries more than anything else. In fact, I went and just kind of begged a friend to let me watch the second set of Unsolved Mysteries episodes. Because like you, I'm a, I'm a true crime fan. I, I grew up watching that show with my mom and, uh, you know, loved the first set, had to get a dose of the second. And uh, it's the music. I mean, probably it'll be documentaries that bring me back to Netflix. It's the music. I really, I mean, the music just draws you in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I miss Robert Stack's voice, though. That's the thing. Is it, yeah. It's not quite the same without Robert Stack. Hey, this was unscripted, but, you know, in that first Unsolved Mysteries episode in this new season, the guy who went through the parking garage roof? Yeah. You got a theory on that? Uh, didn't they say he had, like, mob connections or something like that? I, mean, I think that was that was, that was was the takeaway that I, I grabbed from that. But uh, I think his boss is the one who had mob connections and that's what it, maybe had laid off some problems onto that guy who ended up dead. Right. That was pretty interesting. Yeah. My money's on a helicopter trip, which is totally outlandish. I'm I'm sure it'll be disproven when it's you know all said and done. But that's where my money's at. Well, I hope that one day we'll have the updates to these episodes because you know you go back and you watch Robert Stack episodes. They normally they normally have an update, you know, with the the arrest and the and the follow up. You know, so maybe maybe one day people will think to care to do that with these. I'm listening to the companion podcast where they interview people involved and they talk about the case. And I think on one of the more recent ones, they said, yeah, we've gotten some credible tips and we've got some updates. So I'm like you, I'm, I'm ready to start seeing some, some update roll in. Uh, Jared Moore, what have you been paying attention to? I've actually been, been watching, binge watching uh Seinfeld. Oh man. Always. That's just part of life. And uh, I had, you know, I hadn't seen it in probably five or so years. And so, it's been fun, but it's interesting. I don't uh, just one 
one example, um, they they make inappropriate. So I don't know how Seinfeld hasn't gotten canceled over. There's one episode where, um, you know, they've got this uh, sitcom they're going to put on NBC and they're meeting with the NBC president. And uh, the president's daughter comes in. She's 15 years old and she's got a low cut shirt on. And they just they the whole episode is about them inappropriately looking at her. And I just I'm like, how in the world has Seinfeld escaped? Um, you know, I mean, it was just surprising like that, that that was would be on a show and perfectly acceptable even at that time. I have heard Seinfeld not that long ago kind of say the same thing that the creators of The Office and these other programs say that they probably couldn't have their show made now. You know, and I'm not saying that like. <sighs> I guess I'm not bemoaning that we probably have a sensitive radar now to guys joking around about looking at, uh, you know, down a, a young woman's blouse. Like, I, that's probably a good thing that society is less accepting of that. But, yeah, I've heard I've heard Seinfeld on some of those like interview the comedian shows talk about how it just his show wouldn't be off the ground this this time around if it was being made today. He talks a lot about cancel culture in various interviews and. uh I mean, that particular issue being one thing, but also, you know, sometimes the, the sort of cultural stereotypes that he that he deals with in the show would, would never would, would get off the ground now. So, oh, yeah. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of things. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they're saying that, you know, but but I was that was probably the most surprising thing I've seen. And I'm always doing something else, reading something, writing something. Um, whenever I've got that on in the background, but, um, but that's what I've been watching. And of course there's still inappropriate stuff, you know, it's kind of like the office in that way. You know, you gotta, you gotta follow your, submit to your own conscience there, but that's mainly what I've been, what I've been doing. What about you, Jeff? Well, as our episode list is probably indicating, I've been, for whatever reason, just interested in UFO stuff. And so Ryan talked about Unsolved Mysteries. I mentioned this on a previous episode. I showed the Unsolved Mysteries episode about the UFO abduction to my kids because they were asking me uh, what the deal was with flying saucers. My oldest son is 11, and he sort of has my same paranormal curiosity bent. You know, he, he checks out books about that stuff at the library. And so as we started talking about it at the family table, I was like, well, let me show you this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And uh, it really blew my my younger son, my, my uh, six-year-old. It blew his mind. And I've just been on the same track. So let me tell you guys about two documentaries I'm watching. Okay. So I'm watching one that, that fairly recently released called The Phenomenon. Are, are you the one of y'all familiar with that? I'm familiar with it. I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot about it. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And the the whole idea is basically catching all of us up to the idea that the U.S. government is releasing footage of credible uh, encounters with UAPs or UFOs. Um, and it kind of walks through like, where did the policy of denial come from? And then why did it change? You get into Tom DeLong to the Stars Academy. So that's that's one documentary I'm watching. My oldest son is fascinated by it. So here's this other one. And I'd love to hear if you guys watch it. Tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from our listeners as well. So it's the same production company. This one is called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Have any of y'all, I mean, are y'all familiar with this? No. No. So it's a guy named Stephen Greer who is some sort of medical doctor by training, but he's also a deeply invested and long practitioner of basically Eastern religion and sort of new agey stuff. 
And he is one of the leading figures in the UFO community that's more like, I mean, it's all sort of fringe, right? But he's he's definitely one of the major players out on the fringe. He is selling this program called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, where he is teaching people through meditation and consciousness connection to connect with extraterrestrial entities. And he's got all this footage of, uh, you know, the success uh, of attempts to contact them. So like stuff flying through the sky, uh, seemingly responding to unspoken commands, uh, even like images he claims to be faces of these entities. One guy on there claims to have had his hearing loss healed. And I mean, when I watch it straight up, I think the guy's communing with demons if he's connecting with anything. Because he straight up thinks of himself as attempting to contact intelligences that exist in a parallel dimension. And he's doing it through New Age practices, basically. He, he sees himself as an ambassador to these intelligences. Um, he, you know, he spends so much time talking about like clearing your mind and reaching out with your consciousness and inviting them in and trying to guide them into where you are. And I watch this stuff and I'm like, man, this, this is probably all pure hokum. But if there's anything going on right here, this dude is straight up engaging with with demons. He, at one point, he says that, you know, these these um, what's the what's the word he used? Societies. He thinks they're all advanced societies that have kind of leveled up in consciousness. And so he says they have achieved a level of consciousness that we might call them something like angels. And I'm like, well, what's that something like angels thing that you might stick in there, Dr. Greer? And uh, again, same production company, high quality documentary. And straight up spiritually ter- terrifying. Again, it could all be junk, but if this guy's connecting with anything, it's something sinister. What platform is this available on? I think I stream this on Netflix. I will. I'll try to track that down and send that to you via DM or something if you're interested in watching it. Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll stick a link to it in the show notes uh, for this episode too. The thing is, he's selling an app. Surprise, surprise! He's selling a program, ten dollar app that teaches you how to do all this stuff he's advocating for. And the end of the documentary is basically a, a supercut of people like all over the globe talking about how they are engaging in this practice. The closest one to me was Knoxville, Tennessee. But you just like, man, you look at it and you think if there again, if there's anything going on here, it's the equivalent of everybody learning to play with a Ouija board and reach out to Captain Howdy. It's awful. It, it's interesting how how many New Age cults really in the mid 20th century started embracing the idea of UFOs I and mean, Scientology being you know, the prime example. I mean, they've got a, a creation account that involves you know, aliens landing and, and that sort of thing. You've seen the South Park summary of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but yes, I mean, it's, uh, that's the, uh, that's the, I, I'm, that's, that's an interesting you know, sort of relationship between those two ideas. Yeah, the the previous guest we had on the podcast is a, uh, a Scottish Covenanter church planter out in Reno, and I got turned on to him through the guys at the Cultish podcast, and he's connected me to some more people. And as I'm talking to them and kind of bouncing ideas and trying to learn from them, there, you know, one of the points that consistently comes up is UFO culture almost always leads into some sort of New Age cultish type of spiritualism. Mm. So again, it can all be pure hokum, but if anything's going on, it is not something that's going to be good for for the soul. <clears throat> it's kind of a morbid take, I guess, but that's what I'm watching. Uh, my documentary fix is being filled with UFO stuff. Well, on that front, I guess that's a good transition. So how about we move into So Sorry to Interrupt? So sorry to interrupt. Jared, you and I have an outstanding challenge to kind of 
talk through the remote, I'll, I'll just say remote, but the, the possibility that in 2020, the U.S. government may come out and say, we have acquired extraterrestrial technology, right? That's what some of the stuff that Marco Rubio has been saying to the Times seems to indicate. And so we were thinking through kind of a theology of aliens. Um, Jared, if you don't mind, then we'll go to, to Dr. Putman. Um, lead us into a theology of, of aliens. Does the Bible have anything to say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it could be aliens, could be, I mean, could be uh, demons, um, could be fallen angels, demonic activity, um, demonic deception, uh, could be both uh, spiritual and physical where they are actually possibly providing technology. Um, or it could be actual beings, intelligent beings that are not image bearers, but yet part of God's creation, um, similar to similar to angels in that way. Um, I just don't want to rule out that the possibility, because when we're making definite statements, like this is definitely demons, no physical entity, or um, part of God's good creation that's now fallen, um, you know, I, I just don't want to make hard and fast rules when, when the Bible doesn't, um, doesn't talk about aliens. Um, Wait, have you not read Ezekiel and the rings within the rings and eyes, man? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh but uh but anyway, I I lean towards it's demonic, but again, I you know, it, it's possible that I mean the these similar to fallen angels, you know, the second person of the Trinity did not take on an angelic nature and die for them. So there's no path of redemption. And I would assume that for assume that for um, you know, if these these are creatures that are highly intelligent, doesn't mean that they have a redeemer. It doesn't affect anything in scripture. Like um, I don't, I don't think it would affect anything. So, but that's, that's where I lean. I, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it, it's something we want to, we want to welcome necessarily. Um, but that would be interesting if the government came out and said that in 2020 or 2021, I don't know what a Biden presidency would mean as far as how that's released or if it's released, or I don't know how that, that would affect it. Technology that comes from Nancy Pelosi's home planet. <laughs> There you go. So, Ryan, you believe in the lizard, the lizard people? That's from me. That might very well be possible, I guess. <laughs> considering, considering the way, oh, this sounds going to sound terrible, but the way her skin stretches across her face, you know, like the pulled back, you know, almost like those masks can be, you know, but uh, that's terrible. I think we're onto something here, and they feed off ice cream, right? That's just. <laughs> They need the high sugar content stuff. So, Jared, just to parse this out for uh, our listeners, in your mind, there's a couple categories. What we're calling alien phenomenon, what the government may be talking about. Like when Rubio says, you know, it would be better for it to be alien stuff than Russia or China leaping past us technologically. You're saying that could be extraterrestrial life that fits into a biblical worldview, um, but is not is not subject to the privilege of a redeemer the way human beings as image bearers are. So that you know Hebrews, it's not the it's not the angels that he helps, but it's the children of Abraham. Christ took uh, the nature of humanity unto himself, died in their place, gives his righteousness as a free gift. He, he did not afford that to fallen angels. Mm-hmm. So they, I mean, in some ways, it's almost like a a highly advanced animal. You know, if yes, if dogs were self-conscious in that way and, and rational beings, mm-hmm. they, they they may exist in rationality, but they don't have a redeemer. Right. Or this is some kind of demonic masquerade. Right. One or the, one or the other is where I'm at. 
I think Psalm 8 has to be at the center of whatever you think about extraterrestrial life and and the idea that God says, or what David says, uh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the, <laughs> there's the word Elohim, but it can, it's translated a number of different ways in, <clears throat> in different translations. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Made him a little lower than than the angels, but in in the Hebrew it could be it could be Elohim, meaning God. You made him a little lower than God, uh, and uh, you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him the ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think the idea is that that man is the pinnacle of creation, and um, I don't rule out the, at least the, the, the logical possibility that there are other kinds of intelligences in the material universe. But um, I am pretty skeptical. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like the, I'm like the, the Scully in this, uh, in this conversation, you know, I guess. But, uh, you know, I, I, there was that conversation. I, I mentioned this before we started recording. Um, a couple of years ago, when the when the when the pork spending reports came out, do you remember this with the pork spending? Yeah. The the government spent I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars consulting with theologians, asking him whether the atonement of Jesus covered aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought well, that's a weird government project, uh, you know, to hire mm-hmm. theologians to investigate. So uh, were you guys on that on that group? I, I think my invitation got lost in the mail somehow. <laughs> or one of those that got lost in the mail. Huh? Hmm. Yeah. Now I'm, and I'm largely with you. I, I, I just assume the Christian worldview has explanatory power. I assume that what the Bible has to say would address whatever potential human experience will arise in the course of history. Sure. And nothing immediately leaps out to me as a handbook within Scripture for how to encounter alien life forms. Now, the church in previous generations has neglected seeing things that were clearly there, but anyway, that's where I'm at. Uh, are, are, are you guys fans of Lewis's Ransom Trilogy? So that, I just love that series so much. And in Paralandra, not to give too much away, it's the second book in the series, but Ransom, the protagonist, basically goes to uh, Paralandra and attempts to thwart the fall of that planet's Adam and Eve. And at the end of the book, it is suggested that if the fall is is avoided, basically the descendants of these two creatures will eventually take to the stars and basically extend the creation mandate to the to the cosmos. And again, I have absolutely, you know, I have no insistence that that's how human history was supposed to play out before the fall. But it has really captivated my attention, and so I just sort of assume that you know the planetary systems, what we call space, are there one to tell us about God's immensity and creativity, um, and maybe. Maybe that was sort of a pre-fall uh, opportunity that the human race had to, to head out to the stars, because clearly we have an instinct to do it, right? I mean, Elon Musk is the latest face on that, but we have, as a as a people, an instinct to reach out beyond this planet. And so that has always captivated me. And I, I think one of the interesting things that we talk about, if we colonize Mars in the next you know couple of centuries, uh, which is a hypothetical, I mean, it's becoming more and more possible, I guess, every day with, with what we're talking about with Elon Musk. I mean, the, the biblical statements about the, the world expand to the entire universe. 
Uh, no, I mean, is, is Mars technically a fallen world? The second we, you know, in you know, inhabit it, that, that sort of thing. I tend to think yes. I think it's, I think it's cosmos is all encompassing. Um, but, uh, but it is an interesting question. I'm with you on that. I think the fall extended to the farthest reaches of what we call, you know, reality. But um, outside of the heavenly arena. But again, to take it back to the space trilogy, I'd, I'd encourage you guys to take a look at it if you ever have time. Plus Lewis's uh, discarded image where he talks about the medieval worldview. He basically has an idea that, uh, you know, humans potentially could be in quarantine uh, because of the fall, that if there were alien intelligences out there, that the Lord would have quarantined us off because we had fallen into sin. And so there may be unfallen realms out there. Again, not suggesting in the least that I think that's actually how things work, but it's an interesting framing of the consequences of the fall to the rest of the cosmos and how God maybe, maybe in some theoretical world would be managing uh, the, the fallout from that. I, I don't make any money off <laughs> the Ransom Trilogy, so I'm not trying to uh, snow you guys because I've got a financial interest, but I think it's a great read if you enjoy <laughs> fiction. All right. So I, I'm I'm glad to sign off on kind of Jared's categories there. Certainly glad to sign off with Ryan's idea that, that humans were placed at the pinnacle of creation. Is there anything else about the topic that, that we should bring to the table as Christians trying to think about the question seriously, even though it's a it's a strange one? I'll take that silence there as <laughs> confirmation that we have covered this thing and wrapped it up. Good job, fellas. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this miraculous film unless, uh, Jared, am I pushing past anything you wanted to talk about? No, man, let's pull the string. Okay, so let's look at 2013's Dark Skies. Uh, Again, strange movie, odd choice. I'm assuming that's not burning on anybody's watch list right now. But because of the theme of some episodes here in a row of our, our podcast, I thought it'd be a good one to talk about. Um, Ryan, the way we do things is I read the IMDb summary of the movie, and then we we consider that a spoiler alert, and then we're into into the plot. Um, so I'm going to read that that summary, and you guys tell me what it leaves out that our listeners may need to be aware of. So, according to IMDb, as the Barrett family's peaceful suburban life is rocked by an escalating series of disturbing events, they come to learn that a terrifying and deadly force is after them, one which may have arrived from beyond the stars. Pretty good summary? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, my 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 what I was thinking about it was insidious with aliens. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really apt. Uh, in fact, I would I would go back to uh, Paranormal Activity. I don't know if you guys are, are fans of found footage in that franchise, but there are certain similarities. Yes. Yeah. I, and I, I mean, I'm a horror movie buff. I love watching horror movie stuff. I watched this one in the theater. And I don't remember ever thinking about that. But on the rewatch, when she walks into the kitchen and everything is kind of stacked up uh, in strange fashion, I was like, oh, I've seen that before. I saw that in Paranormal Activity. And you start digging in. This is a Bloomhouse movie. Uh, you know, it's it's six years after Paranormal Activity. It seems to me like they were like, yeah, we could take that template and apply it to aliens. Right. Any thoughts on that, Jared Moore? There, there are similarities. But um, but no, I didn't. I hadn't considered that until you said it. Yeah. So did do you guys remember when you first saw this movie? Is this the first time you saw it or did you go to a theater? How did you see it? This was the first time I saw this movie. I had never really heard of this movie and I turned it on and I there's Felicity. And uh this is mostly she's mostly in the in the movies my wife makes me watch. <laughs> uh whatever. Austin Land. Oh goodness. 
But yes, this is the first time I'd seen this. Was this when you went to go see this in 2013? Were there other people in the theater? Yeah, me and my wife. <laughs> She's gracious enough to go with me. Gracious. <laughs> Maybe she thought, you know, it just had it had uh, Carrie Russell in it, so it might have been a chick flick, you know. Well, so Ryan, if this is the first time you've seen the movie, on behalf of the Pop Culture Cormdale podcast, I just I'll just say you're welcome. <laughs> and I'm an unabashed Carrie Russell fan. I, I really enjoy everything she's in. I think she's the best thing other than J.K. Simmons in this movie. And so uh, I, I've got no shame in my game in celebrating her uh, her acting. There you go. There you go. What about you, Jared? When did you see Dark Skies for the first time? I think I saw it when it came out, and it I remember it freaking me out. Them standing around with their mouths open, I don't know, and it was uh had enough jump scares in it, and and the fact that it's open ended, you know, you it kind of ends with no resolution. And uh, did any of you see the alternate ending? I didn't. Yeah, I don't believe I have. Could you fill us in? Maybe I should say. Maybe I should say that. Would you, would you rather talk about it now? Well, I, I think one of the weaknesses of this movie is that ending. I think it's it's kind of a frustrating lopping off of the narrative. I think maybe there might have been some hope to like do the Shyamalan thing there, uh, and it just wasn't well executed. So if there's another ending out there that they chose the one they went with over, I'd like to hear about it, yeah. Well, the, but the other ending that's on the on the DVD has um, Sam, the, the youngest boy, starting to experience the nose bleeding, which is indicative of... The fact that they're they're prepping him to be the next abductee. Nice, which I think takes away from kind of the plot twist of the of the of the movie itself. You you fully expect him to be the one abducted the whole time, anyway. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that seems like an even more depressing version, right? Like we're kind of we're left with this kid in some strange way being able to reach out to his family, but neither one can do anything to actually call him back from where he's at. And then we'll just add on, oh yeah, the other kid's going to go too. That's that's pretty rough. Right. Well, um, gentlemen, we just kind of break it down according to our questions and categories here. And so I will feed those to you. We're thinking in categories of creation, fall, redemption and glorification. Uh, the first question is, what's the story here? What What are the details we need to to lock in on? And so I'm going to highlight that, you know, kind of the horror of this this film is built on threatening a family, right? Like that the thing that makes this movie scary is that they're outside intelligences who are trying to to threaten a family that we're rooting for. Uh what else is crucial to the to the plot as it exists in this film? I mean it's legit like after the housing market crash and the recession, you know, kind of when this movie came out, we were still in the thick of that, or at least still recovering from it in 2013. And so, you know, a dad looking for a job um, while the family's struggling financially and um, middle-class family struggling, thinking they may lose everything. And I mean, I think a lot of folks could resonate with that. And then the the issues in the family because of that, not being able to pay the bills. And so it's, it's um, really resonates, you know. And the, and the accusations or at least the implied accusations of child abuse. And you talk, I mean, those were, Gut wrenching things. I mean, more terrifying to me than than the the jump scares with the with the gray ones, gray gray people, whatever they're called, the grays. There's some real world horror that this family would have been experiencing, and I could think that anybody that didn't believe what they were saying um, would would have serious questions about you know um, their ability to parent, and and these children should be taken away from them one way or the other. 
Yeah, Ryan, I'm with you. So not too long ago, again, I have a problem with watching horror movies. I watched the um, the remake of Poltergeist that came out, uh-huh. I don't know, mid-2000s. Um, it has uh, Sam Rockwell in it. Uh-huh. And it does a lot of the same stuff. Like, Dad is he's laid off from John Deere. They're having to downsize their house. And both of these movies sort of play on the fear of suburbia, right? And that's that's really the clear and present danger that we live so close to one another and, uh, you know, abuse actually happens in the real world. Right. A few things go sideways and all of a sudden your neighbors are looking at you with a stink eye. And, and like you said, that even on a, a show where we're talking about, ah, what if the government says alien technology exists? That's a very real, real horror that a family could face. Right. The other day, my my youngest daughter, she's preschool age, um, uh, another pastor and his wife keep her during the day for us. And she had went to a playground and as she was playing, she was kind of walking across the swing set. And a kid who was swinging just clocked her right in the face with his foot. Right. He couldn't do anything about it. She just stepped in on on the swing. So she has like a big blue line on the side of her face. And I knew as soon as I picked her up that day. Me and that family are both terrified what everybody is thinking about, you know, what happened to this child. Mm. You sure it was an alien activity? I mean, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I'm not leaning on that as the first hypothesis, but. (laughs) Mm. You know, another thing with with this movie that I thought was um, was fairly heart wrenching for what, you know, what the quality or caliber of movie we're talking about is that once dad gets engaged, you know, that that's sort of the whole thing you you need to have happen. Right. Dad's skeptical. Dad thinks this is crazy. Dad thinks the wife has gone off the deep end. But eventually he gets on board and he's deciding, you know what, we're going to fix the house up. We're going to build these defense mechanisms. And that's usually in a lot of these style horror movies. I think I just need the dad to be proactive. I need him to quit reacting. Uh, but it, it kind of bummed me out when he finally gets engaged. And I'm not saying you have to go buy a shotgun to get engaged, but he's he's trying to deal with this threat. And, dude, he just gets bulldozed. <laughs> he has no resources to protect his family. And uh, that's a fear that lives in my head, too. You know, the wrong scenario, dad, who's supposed to be the one who takes care of stuff, uh, may run up against something he can't fight. That, that's a real world horror. This is going to sound like a weird comparison, but it made me think about the, the Lee Strobel case for Christ movie. Mm. Because, I mean... You know, it, it's sort of that classic story that happens in, in, in spiritually mismatched marriages where you have a, a wife who becomes a believer and, uh, <laughs> and, and then it takes him forever to, to see the evidence pile up. But, but instead, instead of obviously being Orthodox Christian belief here, it's, I've Googled these resources about UFOs and look, we found all these things. But, but I mean, it's almost like he has a genuine conversion experience. Like where all of a sudden he's looking at that at that screen and he sees those those still images of those grays and he has that his eyes just glaze glaze over. It's like he can see for the first time and he believes all of a sudden, despite the fact that he's seen everything crazy uh, to keep, you know, that you would think you would believe beforehand. But uh, but yeah. That was a that was a weird sort of comparison, but uh, well, and and an important distinction you made there between uh, belief in aliens and whatnot. But now I think that's right on. I I think it, it's funny that you know basically everything in this movie depends on the omnipotent Google search. You know what I mean? I, that trope that's there. Um, I, I sometimes I watch that stuff and I think, well, if we could only hook up the omnipotent Google search to whatever skeptic question there is, we, we'd see a new revival. And, and, and it's funny because, I mean, it's like they go to one website and it lists 
all of the same, you know, uh, you know, things that are happening in the same house. But what I found really funny was was the J.K. Simmons character. You know, the J. Jonah Jameson is the is the is the Fox Mulder type in this in this movie. But he's 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 saying that I've interviewed. First and foremost, it's funny that they have him just nearby. We got this UFO expert, and he's in he's he lives in town, you know. <laughs> and you come into the house and. And he says, I've interviewed thousands just like this. And he even has the, the wall with all the with all the cases he's documented. And I'm like, if there's been thousands in this area, you know, this would be more well-known phenomena, you know. Uh, I guess. We really don't have in this movie anything really about government cover-up mm-hmm. whatsoever. I mean, this is, I mean, that's that's one sort of trope that this movie is free of completely. It's it's just playing the haunted house demon possession sort of motif, but substituting the supernatural with extraterrestrials. I think uh, so. I think and this may be a different take than you guys have, but I I think this movie is making an argument about parenting, um, about basically fatherhood and that the grays represent gray areas in raising our children. So you think of Jesse. Jesse's out playing with an older kid. And he's being taught about the birds and the bees instead of from his parents. His parents are all worried about the American dream. And so they're essentially focused on keeping this house up and keeping the cars paid for and keeping all this stuff going while their kids out here, you know, Hmm. uh, getting drunk and getting exposed to pornography and learning about um, how to think of women. And so I, I think the I think the director, he's all he also wrote this. Um, is arguing that these gray areas will come and take our children. Y'all talking about the dad waking up. By the time he wakes up and sees the grays and realize, and not only that, but the grays, the grayers are controlling him. And it's just a, that's what I think it's about. I think it's an indictment against parenting, against, um, you know, pursuing the American dream at the expense of neglecting your children. Now, have you guys seen the other movies that, that, that Scott Stewart both directed? I saw that uh, Legion film. <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. I, I, I just sort of wondered how much of that worldview is, is, is present here. I mean, Legion is, is basically the, the plot of the movie is, is Michael the Archangel, played by Paul Bettany, Vision, uh, well, uh, everything is going to come back to a superhero maybe at some point, I suppose. But uh, he he's Michael the Archangel, and he, he basically comes to Earth, cuts off his wings. He's in active and open rebellion to God because God has sort of conjured up this plan to destroy the human race. And uh, and 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 there's of course there's always this sort of savior child that, that, that you know kind of like the, what you see in the the, the seventh um, seal and, and and movies like that um, or the seventh sign getting the getting the the movie you know, confused the Demi Moore maybe the seventh sign um, but yes uh, there's there's that savior child that if they go and save this child the human race will be saved and the apocalypse will be thwarted. And and so Michael goes to try to save this child, but God, knowing what Michael is up to, sends Gabriel to come do war with with Michael. And uh, and then at the end of the story, I'm, and I'm spoiling it for you. I'm sorry, but uh, it, <laughs> it's it's basically Michael wins and, and Gabriel's defeated. And and uh, and the, the throwaway line at the end of the movie is that uh, that Michael or Gabriel tried to do what God wanted. 
Michael did what God needed. <laughs> oh my! And that was to give humanity to give humanity another chance. And uh, and then of course, priest is the movie about the, the 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 priest who hunt vampires. So there's there's spiritual sort of theme themes in the background. I, I have no idea whether this guy is a is an atheist or he's a he's a uh, you know some sort of uh, backslidden nominal Christian of some kind. But I mean he he has he certainly has uh, a lot of religious themes. This movie not explicitly religious, but pretty clearly implicitly religious. It's interesting to me, like when you watch, you know, sort of the original movies in this genre of, of demon possession and houses and that sort of thing, the movies that came out in the 70s, The Exorcist, The Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, and, you know, and even and even though later maybe like the original Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2, there's always sort of a strong religious theme and connection to demon movies. Who who who's the first person that they go to? They go to a priest. It's kind of this kind of Catholic worldview of Hollywood that's 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 seen back then. But then as horror movies progress, there's less and less presence of of a Catholic exorcist. That becomes more of a more of a background point. And uh, and you have you have in the Insidious movies a psychic. In, in, in the later Poltergeist movies, you have, you know, Native American, you know, um, shamans, that sort of thing. But in this movie, they go to a, to a, who, a guy who's kind of a closet UFO scientist, I guess you would call him. I mean, so, so it doesn't have that typical supernatural versus natural worldview that so many demon possession movies have. It's really more of a, a materialistic demon possession movie, if you will. Things that are within this material universe. Um, and, you know, atheists will, will oftentimes appeal to the possibility of, of extraterrestrial life. I mean, Richard Dawkins famously did so in his interview with Ben Stein and, uh, and said, well, there may be intelligent design, but that's probably some sort of extraterrestrial being. Or that sort. So they, they will appeal to anything if it can avoid, they can avoid bringing in transcendent god or or supernatural being so i really felt like that's it's sort of a non-religious attempt at doing a religious story i mean the the interest that initially kind of provoked me to look into ufo culture is exactly that point that it it quickly becomes a quasi-religion and it fulfills a lot of the same beats because as we watch this if you pulled jk simmons out of that uh living room and you put him in a robe with a, a clerical collar and dropped him back in, it, it wouldn't really change a whole lot, except that you're on the right path there, Ryan, that all of a sudden we need a materialistic priest, right? Yeah, the, the exposition would be different, but all everything else around it would be the same. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're, you know, the, the Conjuring movies are clearly sort of a throwback to that right. Catholic right. worldview of the supernatural and whatnot. But in the Curse of La Llorona, they pull in a uh, a bruja, right, from from sort of a, a native religion element that he kind of works in, in partnership with a priest. And so I think these movies that in unsophisticated fashion, uh, but nonetheless, uh, and, and in a way that makes me value the genre, they do kind of want to grasp at bigger questions about. That's what I've always appreciated about supernatural horror is it, it seems really concerned with spiritual questions. And and usually they they don't have a materialistic worldview. Usually they're 
you know, and, and, and so Jared and I were talking the other day about one of, I guess one of your favorite movies, Exorcism of Emily Rose, I mean, which is, which is a kind of apologetic argument for God buried beneath, you know, this, this, this intricate exorcism story. The, the problem I think that, that a lot of people have with, at least when they were watching these exorcism movies back in the 70s, is they're not seeing the other side of the equation. They're seeing the great evil, but they're not seeing the power of Christ genuinely compelling to my spirits. spirits. It's, it's, almost, it's almost as if there's some sort of dualism that's lopsided and, and, and evil is winning. But I think this genre is, is really built and made to have conversations about spiritual things. Jared, I want to come back to that um, that analysis you did, but before we leave, kind of this topic of the spirituality of these films, uh, I am a big fan of the Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, a couple of years ago, it's it's been a little bit more than a couple at this point. I went up to Washington D.C. to do a uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Weekender, and I was going to be traveling by myself, and so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to the novel the Exorcist movie was based on. And it, I got like a special edition audiobook, and it had a different material on it and whatnot. And one of the things that I found out is that Blatty wanted to do some of the same stuff with The Exorcist. And, you know, particularly he was interested in a priest who sacrificed himself to bring liberation to this girl. And I, I mean, I think your point is right that maybe this is a provocative question to a secularist worldview. You know, do you believe, are you sure that there's nothing out there in the supernatural realm that might hurt you? But in you know to to Blatty's credit, I think he tried to be self conscious about well, I've got to do something that that frames the religious figure in a positive light. And having listened to that audiobook, I appreciated it. Uh, you know, you're talking about Scott Stewart. He has come back to some of that same stuff from Legion in what he's working on now, which is a TV show called Dominion. Uh, I think that probably indicates you're onto something, Ryan, as you're thinking about like what's going on in his head. But Jared, I'd, I'd like to come back to that analysis you did. Do you think he was self-consciously trying to sort of frame this film as a metaphor, or do you see that as something that was implicit? Maybe he wasn't fully aware of, but it's it's the right lens to see the movie through. I think it's I think that's the lens. Now I might be wrong. I didn't read anything. This is what I was thinking while I was watching it because otherwise it doesn't make any sense what the Jesse's going through. It doesn't make sense that he's when he's going out and. And the relationship with the little girl when he touches her inappropriately because of what he saw, um, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And right before he's abducted, he has this vision of his dad has killed his mom and then he takes his own life. And I, I just I just think it's a, an indictment against the father. I think that he's trying to say that by the time the father realizes that the gray areas have taken his teenager, um, that it's too late. Mm-hmm. But you have a glimmer of hope at the end that that, you know, y'all know that teenagers, when they leave the home, eventually they come back eventually. And it's there's kind of this glimmer at the end that your your kid's going to come back. So I just uh, that that's what I think. I think he's he's making a statement against all these parents neglecting their kids because they're trying to provide when their teenagers need them um, and. I think that's really provocative. I, I, it's going to be a stretch for me to think that like Stuart was self-consciously there because I've just seen his other projects and I don't know. I don't know if he's doing anything more than spectacle, mm-hmm. but that, you know, that lens you just provided us works as a, you know, pretty internally consistent approach to this film and sort of, you know, you're talking about it, it being an indictment of parenting. It's, it's an indictment of career chasing absenteeism, right? That, that, yeah, that really suburbia kind of afforded as well, where like you just turn the kids out 
and the neighborhood kids are all supposed to be supposed to be sort of a peer group that watches over each other, but that goes sideways really quick in some bad ways. And it's just an interesting juxtaposition of of even the, the physical settings between their house, which you know obviously they're going to lose before the movie's over with. This this extremely nice upper middle class home and looks like a, a mansion of sorts, and then you compare it with the rundown house. That, that, that you see at the, you know, when, when, when reality stuff. And, and you, is there a line in it? And, and correct me if, maybe if, if I'm wrong about this, where she indicates almost like that that was the property that her and her husband had invested in, or she's selling it for, for a reality company. Because right before she has her episode in, in front of these potential buyers, she starts talking about we, you know, in first person plural about selling the house. That's a good point. I don't think I caught that. I sort of, wonder, I sort of wondered if it was their investment that they're trying to dump. Hmm. But I don't know that for sure. Yeah, but I mean, clearly she has a personal obligation to offload this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's also, you know, that rundown other properties where the kids end up hanging out all the time because they can get they can get the keys. And that's where the bad stuff happens from the absentee parents. I mean, it would really complete a metaphor if that was another property that the family's lifestyle had afforded them that they needed to get rid of, but it was the place where all the bad stuff happened for the kids. Well, and, and something else, the, the dad hates the kid's friend. Like, he does not think he should be hanging out with him. He does not think he should be around him. But yet, he's around him all the time. Yeah. Like, he's just letting him go do what he knows he shouldn't be doing because he's so worried about his money. Mm. And and then by the time he corrects, he overcorrects way too harshly and sharply, right? Right. Yeah, and like he assaults the kid, and it's too late. It's it's there's this assumption that you know while you were providing a nice home for your children, you were not providing a nice home for your children. Hmm. Like it's this. Uh, I mean, I might be reading into it, but I was just trying to figure out how does it keeps focusing. And by the time you get to the movie, end of the movie, you realize that it's really all about Jesse. And he's the one that's gonna, that's really being taken from the family. And all of a sudden, it makes sense them showing because otherwise that doesn't fit in the plot. Like, what does what does him inappropriately touching that girl have to do with the aliens? Like, you know, like is that just fodder for the teenage hijinks? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, but I, I think it's it, it's off making that argument really against the father. But yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's a pretty good lens on the film. Yeah. Well, just to to kind of step to some of the next questions, what do we see that's actually good in this story? Uh, that the question we specifically asked from from Turnout is, "What's good, true, and awesome here? Where do we see common grace?" And so, I would lead off by just saying this movie doesn't work if traditional families aren't a good thing, and we don't sort of have a rooting interest in them and some expectation of how they function. I think that's a good thing. Uh, particularly in an era that's that wants to pretend like you know the family is just another drop in liquid modernity that can be reshaped as cultural whims dictate. Uh, what else do you guys see there, Ryan? Maybe we'll go to you first. What's good here? Well, I, w- I would just echo that same sentiment. There's no it takes a village mentality here um, with 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 the family unit. I mean, and uh, and it, it seems like they have every interest in trying to protect these things. Um, <sighs> I would really say that that's the the primary good here. I mean, obviously, clearly, dad is failing in this area. And and mom's not doing too hot of a job either in in certain ways. Um, But but 
man, do they want to protect it if they can. Mm -hmm. Sort of under that same heading, I appreciate a big brother who cares about his little brother, you know? Oh, yeah. That's uh, Stephen King's It, and the movies have been made of it. That's always something I really just, I love about those movies. I love siblings who aren't bickering and hating each other and despising each other, but where a, a big brother takes care of a little brother. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Only child, I don't get it, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it looks genuinely like a, like a good thing to have. Yeah, same here, Doctor Moore. What are we doing here? What's good? Um, I think I think y'all y'all hit almost uh, all of it. I think that there's an emphasis on the father providing and protecting. Um, I think it sees it that he should be doing these things, but not at the expense of his kids. And uh, I, I think that's what the indictment is. And that mothers should want to nurture their children. She's obviously a nurturer, wanting to you know, care for her children. But it seems that, you know, I don't know if it's a statement about teenagers or what, them wanting to break away from their parents. And uh, this and may, this may be just from our book that the pop culture parent were arguing, no, you get involved in your, your children's lives. And uh, and they're they're just flat out not involved in their in Jesse's life. And they're just they're just not at all. Well, that sounds like a good time to transition into the next question there. So what is distorted, evil and false here? What what idols exist and how do we subvert them? Um, You know, the evil, the movie presents as evil because I believe he, he's again, he's indicting the parents in this movie. Uh, the, the good is presented as good, but but there's no redemption. There's no redemption in this movie. Um, although parent, parental influence is very important. The greatest issue with our children is not their environment, but their own sinful heart. And this movie has no remedy for that. It's it's a fear-mongering movie that if parents do not do their jobs properly, the gray areas will take our children from us. Um, so, I mean, there's this, there is that reality, right? We, we should get involved in the lives of our kids. We need to be there for them, even as we are stressed over providing for them. Um, but even if you do that perfectly... Their only hope is not good parenting or faithful parenting or godly friends, but Christ alone. And um, the movie wants to say that parents spending more time with their children and less time pursuing the American dream um, is going to protect our children from these gray, the grays or the gray areas. And uh, the thing is, you know, that's ideal. We're, we're to raise our children according to the word, at least from a Christian perspective. But you know, as well as I do, that our children are. They come to us broken, right? They they come to us fallen, and um and although we may raise them exactly as the word says, if they do not repent and believe in Christ, there's there's really no hope for them. And so the, this movie kind of leaves out the there, there's no redemption. There's there's a glimmer of hope at the end, but I don't see redemption in this movie. It's very nihilistic. I mean, I, I mean, there's again, I think that ties back to what I kind of see as an as an atheist spirituality or. You know the, the the atheist demonic oppression, at least in 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 the in the set in the Catholic demon possession movies. There's a priest. There's there's the possibility of, of their souls going to heaven or something like that. And there's no there's no promise of that whatsoever in this story. Mm-hmm. So last night I was listening to an interview with Benjamin Merkel from New St Andrews, and he was talking about an anxiety that is sort of I wouldn't say unique, but particularly. Uh, present in traditional families of an evangelical stripe, you know, that basically we view the world uh, as an economy and that com- that economy is a series of, uh, you know, cogs that mesh up together perfectly. And basically the idea of parenting is 
to shape your child into the kind of cog that would just immediately fit right into that system and be able to thrive within it. And so he says that we end up sort of bowing the knee between before uh, before this not a you know not economy in the classic sense, but this vision of the world saying, "Have we done well enough? Will you accept what we have to offer? Will you please take care of our children?" And sort of a theme in this conversation already has been the anxieties and the dangers of suburbia. And I think that's there's something to that right there, right? That if the family doesn't doesn't do its job really well, the kids are going to be lost in a way they may not be that they may not be recoverable from. And I get that 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 anxiety is built on a real possibility. I just think that it is possible that that kind of anxiety is an idol for those of us who believe in a sovereign God that ultimately nature, nurture, those are important factors. But the will of the Lord, the means of grace, uh, you know, the the activity of the spirit are what we're ultimately determining or excuse me. That's what we're ultimately putting our confidence in for the future of our children that we love so much. Amen. And I think that, that, that comes out really clear in the way that he's, he has trouble being honest with his wife because I mean, at the end of the day, he's, he's ultimately more concerned about, you know, protecting the way he appears to her than he is actually taking care of his family and, and meeting mm-hmm. that. And he feels such shame for being unable to, to be the provider that he that he need, he thinks he needs to be, and uh, there's certainly a, a distorted view of the family that comes across there. Yeah, that's a great point, Doctor Putman. Um, I mean, I I'll just be honest with you. I lived through sort of an economic downturn at one point when I wasn't employed by the church and the industry was threatened. Like I felt for that guy in that moment. You know, I don't know that that temptation to uh, to lie it doesn't live in my heart. And so I, I want to be sympathetic there that like that's a that's a very human response. But you're right on the point that he would rather lie to protect his image than actually own his failures and, and address them meaningfully. That's that's a good point. Uh, anything else on what's false and idolaters here? All right. I mean, the the the, the idol, I believe it. this movie argues that if you if you don't neglect your kids, that they'll grow up fine, I think is is the argument. And uh, I think that's an idol that can't it cannot deliver. I mean, you know, you can raise your children um, as good as possible and then them still grow up to be hellions. And um, yeah, I mean, I think about your dear, sweet parents and what what happened with you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't have anything to say, man. I mean, I can't. can't You do have you do have clearly cases where it's the exact opposite. And to go back to C.S. Lewis um, and the great divorce, the mother who dotes on her son endlessly, but still she's made an idol out of her son and and uh, and and she can't cross into the plane into heaven. And uh, I think I think you can go the opposite way. You can you can be the cat in the cradle kind of uh, dad, but you can also be the you can be the the dad who's or the mom who who loves your kids so much. You give your child whatever they want. You spend so much time and attention with them, but they still grow up in a in a gospelless home and a mm-hmm. kind of a hopeless situation of a different kind. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, gentlemen, so let's wrap it up on our last question. If we're going to talk to an unbelieving neighbor or we want to encourage a Christian who's watched this movie along with us, how do we talk to him about the gospel, the goodness of Christ, Christian worldview here? How does, how does the gospel apply? And uh, Ryan, if you'll if you'll lead off with your thoughts there, we'll go to Jared after that. Yeah, I mean, I think clearly, clearly when we're talking about this from a worldview framework, um, 
the problem is 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 selfishness. The problem that, that this family experiences is ultimately boils down to to sin. And um, we do have a need for relationships. We do have a need um, to, uh, to 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 be in loving, cohesive family units. But we can't really do that on our own apart from the work and grace of, of God that's been given to us in Christ. And um, so the, the problem, while they might not see the problem as sin, um, the problem that, that we, from our, from our perspective, is clearly sin. Um, the behavior of this family manifests the way that they're so dysfunctional. I mean, dysfunction comes from sin. And uh, ultimately, I would want to, uh, to point people to Christ from there. Um, it's only Christ that gives us freedom from our sin. It's only Christ that enables us to get out of sin and then Christ that, that uh, forgives us for our sin. So, mm. yeah, that's good. Jared? Um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I, I assume that I, that I have already warped my kids. Um, I've not been a perfect father. I love them. They know this. We raised them in church, raised them in the Word. Uh, they know Daddy's sins. They know, they've seen me repent. Um, but if they want to grow up and blame Daddy and Mommy for not being the best parents, I'm sure they can find enough fodder to excuse their sin. But biblically, Mommy and Daddy's sin does not explain our children's sins. Right. It, you know, if children grow up hating the sins of their mothers and fathers, why do they so often grow up to become just like their parents? Why do they become what they supposedly hate? And the answer is that the problem is us. And, and as long as we are blaming other people for our sin, we'll never be free. And so I, I think that, again, I think that this movie is blaming the father for essentially the, the child's sins. And yes, the, the parents should not have neglected their children, but nevertheless, that teenage boy um, you know, it kind there's kind of a, I think there's an innocence there that is baloney myself. I mean, when he, when he touches that girl inappropriately, he had to know that that was wrong. Like they, they act like, oh, he saw this movie. Therefore this, he, he views this as okay. Come on. Um, I don't, I don't buy that for one second. But, but you know, I did, I did read stuff and you guys have probably heard this stuff too. A lot of teenagers who are sexually active, they will bypass kissing and go straight to sexual acts. And there was almost that sort of comment wow. where she, where she says, haven't you ever kissed a girl? You know, like, yeah, you, because, because that's not what pornography, you know, sort of presents pornography presents this. Well, and, and of course his, his, his idiot friend Ratner is, is keeps on asking him the questions. How far did you get? How far did you get? How far did you get? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's that distorted view of sexuality that that so many of our of our teenage culture living in now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm not in opposition to you there, Jared. I I do think the kids should clearly know you don't grow up a, a a girl, right? But I thought that was sort of a stumbling after a real truth about pornography that it warps our understanding of how the sexes should should relate to one another. And sure, in some ways, I kind of appreciated that that they're like, yeah, you can't. You can't let your kids turn loose on porn and expect their human relationships to go the way they're supposed to. Sure, sure. I mean, I I agreed with that indictment. I just I think that I don't know, man. It just seems you don't want to remove moral agency, right? I think that's what I hear you. Yeah, I th I think the kid was still responsible. I think I mean, if she had went and tried to press charges against him, he'd be in trouble, you know, because he was responsible for it. But um, but I think this is that's where the gospel comes in. Like I can. You know, you know, I've had to apologize to my kids before due to unrighteous anger. Again, they've seen daddy repent. 
Um, but I'm doing my best to raise up my children to take responsibility for their sin, to take responsibility for their own desires that are contrary to God, and to rest in the finished work of Christ, you know, to not rest in themselves or to be able to grow up and say, Daddy did this, therefore I am the way I am. And biblically speaking, people who, you know, if Daddy has harmed me, then he's responsible for his sin. But as I grow up, I'm responsible still before God for my sin. And um, that, that's something that's where the gospel comes in and repent and believe in Christ. He takes our sin away. He gives us his righteousness. And um, I think that, that true freedom is not found in indicting our parents, but is ultimately found in um, agreeing with the indictment God has against us and enjoying him indicting his son in our stead. Mm. Yeah, that I mean, that's getting at the theme. I mean, I'm close to where you guys are at already. I'm just, I think, coming at it from the lens of being thankful for the adoption motif of the kingdom that I think if I was talking to one of my neighbors who maybe didn't understand the Christian faith, I would say stories where dads matter make sense to us at a fundamental level. You know, we we're sort of going through a time is something I've already mentioned. We're going through a time where we feel like the family can be redefined willy-nilly. But when we watch stories, dads are important characters, and that just sort of resonates within us. And so this movie where dad is not up to snuff or he's in a difficult spot and can't do what he's called to do, that just seems credible to us. And we realize that that puts the family in crisis and that people are not going to thrive there. And so like you, Jared, I'm sure in my own parenting, my kids are going to have ample opportunity to say, dad did not do this well, and we have we have scars from that. I don't want to take away moral agency or responsibility from them, but I think they will legitimately be able to say dad didn't do it all right in some important ways. And that leaves me very thankful that I am the child of a father who has never dropped the ball. Uh, there is no threat to my father's household, right? So if mm-hmm. if angels and demons are the best explain, explanation for alien phenomenon, uh, whatever, they are no threat to my father's household. And that ultimately when my kids think about the concept of father. I hope that my relationship to them informs this, but I ultimately want them to think about a faithful father who always zealously guards his house, never drops the ball, and as a result is perfectly able to care for those who are part of his household. Like I I would, you know, I don't know I would do it that directly, but I would kind of walk through like, yeah, dads matter and we can't pretend otherwise. And it's supposed to set us up to think about a God who very uniquely tells his people, call me father. Mm. Amen, man. That is comforting. When my dad went to be with the Lord, um, you know, I think it was Dwight McKissick who told me, you know, whatever um, you lack now that your dad's gone, your heavenly father will provide. And uh, I mean, that's always true. And I found that comforting and encouraging. And it, he's been gone six and a half years now. And um, I'm with you, man. I, I think if we can, if our kids love, uh, love their heavenly father, and I hope that we're an avenue through that, that, man, they'll be good to go. Like I, I just feel, <laughs> I just feel like if my kids growing up to to be godly adults is ultimately hinging on me and not on God, my kids are in trouble. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm glad to co-sign that, particularly for you and your kids, man. <laughs> <laughs> you wait, dude. Our kids going to school together. There's going to be some marrying going on, and I can't figure out who it is yet. But oh, dude, I'd be over the moon, except for my daughters who are going to. You know, I've told you they're going to be in the first Protestant convent. (laughs) 
Mm. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you for your time here, Ryan. Thank you for your generosity. You've been with us. Man, my pleasure. Uh, and 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 been a big help here, uh, guys. Can I get you? I'll let Jared go first. Uh, Ryan, if you'll follow, just let listeners know where they can find you on social media or whatever else you're up to. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. Um, go go uh, check out my book, The Pop Culture Parent. Uh, Ryan actually endorsed it. And um, yeah, I don't you know, know what I was thinking at the time. Amen, brother. What did he say? Ah. <laughs> he said he didn't know what he was thinking at the time. <laughs> oh. No, it was a good book. It was a good book. <laughs> <laughs> He's awesome. He's awesome. But uh, yeah, uh, go check it out. And uh, Rod, you go ahead, man. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know that you would want to find me online, but I am at Ryan Putman, R-H-Y-N-E-P-U-T-M-A-N at, at Twitter.com. I'm usually responding to something boneheaded, Jared, that not Jared and Jeff are saying. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. I don't know. That, that might be, that might be, uh, my, my newest book project that, that that's in out right now is when doctrine divides the people of God from Crossway and I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, Ryan is a good follow on Twitter. You should totally follow him if only for the correction he he brings me and Jared. Uh, Ryan, I have to confess (laughs) that I have not picked up when Doctrine Divides yet, but sitting down for this, I thought, dummy, get on this. And so I plan to remedy that before the week is out. I'm I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't know that there could be a more timely practical book for 2020. And so (laughs) I can't wait to read it. Well, I, I do. I, I'm going to go back and add a chapter on when masks divide the people of God next. <laughs> that's, my, that's my next. Uh... <laughs> oh, dude! If you get on that uh, that rat wheel, you'll never get off, though, man. Because it seems. Twenty twenty is just going to keep churning those up, and then twenty twenty one maybe pick up the the banner. Speaking optimistically about twenty twenty one, it might be worse. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, what a note to yeah. end on. That's about as uh, nihilistic as the ending of this film we're reviewing, but <laughs> the Lord knew what he was doing when he put us in these days, right, gentlemen? Hey, Absolutely. I turn me back to dispensationalism after it's all said and done. <laughs> sure. Dust off those books of charts, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, gentlemen. Well, I'm going to take us out. Thank you again, Ryan, for being with us. Jared, it's always good to talk to you, brother. I uh, appreciate you, gentlemen, and just hope you'll keep up the good work. On behalf of Ryan Putman and Jared Moore, this is Jeff Wright signing off on Pop Culture Quorum Deo's episode covering Dark Skies, reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. Talk to you next time.